Hi, this is Azimuth World Foundation's podcast, Connecting the Dots. With the help of our guests, we will be connecting the dots between matters of access to public health and safe water and the balance between humankind and nature among indigenous and rural communities. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Connecting the Dots. My name is Mariana Marx. I'm the Executive Director of Azimuth World Foundation, a US-based organization advancing access to safe water and public health and promoting the balance between humankind and nature through its allyships with indigenous peoples and local community organizations. Today, we are incredibly honored to have with us Alaka Wally. Alaka is the curator of North American Anthropology in the Science and Education Division at Chicago's Field Museum. As the founding director of the Center for Cultural Understanding and Change, Alaka pioneered the development of participatory social, social science research and community engagement processes based in museum science. As Asimus develops new projects with indigenous communities in Ecuador, we're also very excited to discuss Alaka's work with the Field Museum's Keller Science Action Center, which translates museum science into conservation and quality of life strategies in the tropical forests of the Andes and Amazon region, and also Chicago. Since 1999, the center's rapid inventory work has contributed to the protection of 26 million acres of lands and waters. It has also empowered local communities to be in charge of conservation efforts in a way that preserves their culture and identity and advances their well-being and quality of life. We're also extremely happy to have Rowan Martin guiding today this conversation. Rowan is a biologist and conservationist with a passion for connecting people and nature to protect threatened ecosystems. Rowan currently serves as the director of the World Parrots Trust Africa Conservation Program. And we're also very honored to have him as a member of Asimbus World's Foundation Advisory Committee. Alaka Rowan, thank you so much to both of you for sharing your knowledge and experience with us today. And I'd like to ask a first question to Alaka. Uh, I think our audience would like, would like to, to know. Um, so Alaka, seen from afar, many people will assume that conservation is mostly related to natural sciences, such as biology. Can you tell us what role anthropology and the social sciences play in conservation efforts? And, and also, how fundamental is it for conservation to rely on interdisciplinary work? Thank you, Mariana, and thank you for this opportunity to speak about our work and uh, our perspective on conservation. As you know, I'm at the Field Museum in Chicago and I'm part of the Keller Science Action Center. We've been doing this work with environmental conservation in the Amazon region and also in Chicago for close to 20 years or more than 20 years I've been involved um, in doing this work. And here's, here's what I say when asked this question about social science engagement with conservation. You know, conservation is is all about decision making, right? It's it's not a um, purely sort of natural science in the sense that um, Rowan 
you know, biology where you're studying like evolution, which is what we do at the Field Museum. And we're really trying to understand patterns of diversity, et cetera. Conservation itself, the idea that we can think about how to make decisions that will, in fact, protect biodiversity or habitats and so on. That's a very human endeavor. You know, it involves people having to make decisions. So if that is the case, if conservation is about making the the best decisions for how to protect landscapes that we care about or protecting biological diversity, then you do need social science in the mix. You need to understand where people are coming from, what is the most effective way to make decisions about protection. It's not enough to say, well, this area has the best biodiversity. It's a biodiversity hotspot and therefore it should be protected. That's a good start, but it's not enough to actually get the area protected, right? Or to get the biological diversity protected. You need to understand the way in which people make decisions. What's the political context? What's the social context? What's the economic context that will allow them to make those decisions in a good way? And so that's why I think we do need in conservation work, we need social science to be part of the team that helps understand how you do effective conservation in the end. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, thank, thanks so much for that, Gary. It's, it's fascinating. So coming back from a background of, of being a biologist and then coming in, into the realm of conservation and then realizing often the biological questions are really the easy pieces to answer and how you solve conservation problems is the enormous <laughs> challenge where you need a whole diversity of different, different skills and expertise and perspective to grapple with them. Which is one of the things I think is so fascinating about the approach that, that you take to these these problems. Yeah, so going on, so you you were the founder of the Centre for Cultural Understanding and Change back in the 1990s. And mm-hmm. that centre sort of pioneered the development of participatory social science research and community engagement processes based in museum science. Can you tell us a bit more about what that means and how participation and engagement of communities can improve scientific research? Sure. And that's a good way of talking about what the work I've done that is, I mean, not all social scientists do community engaged or participatory research, right? Sometimes we're just doing basic research like biologists. We decide on a problem we're interested in, and then we do our research design. We have the hypothesis, et cetera, et cetera. So there's always that kind of approach to social questions, if you will. But in my case, I was always concerned about starting in my even grad school days, I was concerned about how can anthropology be useful to communities? How can we do anthropology that helps people solve the problems that they have with their everyday life? And I started off, my early work was in um, looking at what happened to these indigenous communities in Panama when their lands were flooded by a large hydroelectric project thinking about, well, well, what could my research help 
them do, you know, in telling their story, how would that help them then um, make a case to the government of Panama for more assistance as they were forcibly relocated and so on. So I kind of have always been what we call applied in my work, applied anthropology. But over the years, I realized that, you know, to really do work that that was problem solving with communities, the communities themselves had to be engaged with the research. They had to be part and parcel of how we do the work. And so over the years, I've tried to refine the approach to one that does include the folks I'm working with in the process of doing the research or doing the programmatic work that will then allow the communities to actually use the scientific knowledge we have to make decisions. So in the case of conservation work, what this, you know, the practical side of this is that when we can work directly with communities and they can begin to see what the benefit is to them of having large protection, you know, large areas of forest, for example, where we work in the Amazon, set aside for protection, whether it's through any number of IUCN categories like national parks or uh, communal reserves or so on. So when they see what the benefit of that is through our process of working directly with communities, then they become allies. And that's a huge benefit to conservation because if local people are there sustaining these landscapes, then you know, then that's when you get long-term sustained protection for, for those areas. I think there's plenty of evidence to show that that's true. When you forcibly exclude people from areas was called fortress conservation, right? Where the idea was, okay, we know scientifically that this is the area that needs to be protected and we'll just, if not a real fence, a metaphorical fence around it, that has not worked. People have found ways to encroach in those areas. You can't put enough resources into that kind of protection governments aren't willing. So finding ways to include local people in and around these protected areas in the process of conservation decision-making and protection is really, you know, I think there's evidence to show that that's really the, the most effective way to get protection for those areas. So participatory research or engagement has that benefit of direct action. Another benefit it has is that your research is a whole lot better. Um, <laughs> when people understand what the value of your doing this research is, I know that there's always been this um, argument that uh, you can't, in social science anyway, in anthropology for a long time, that you can't do objective research if you're engaging with the subjects of your research. But I don't think that that's not been the case, I, don't, I think. And there's, again, there's now more and more anthropologists and doing community-based research and the evidence, their research is very valid. It's showing that that doesn't affect the quality of the research or the quality of the findings. So in fact, it helps. And do you find, I imagine that taking this approach, you sort of come in with a, a particular 
idea, a set of research questions and, and approach, and that that ends up evolving during the process of the, in this sort of participatory process. So you, do you sort of end up, you're almost redefining your research questions as you go at times too. Yeah, and I think that's another, um, it's not orthodoxy, but it is, I think it's an innovation and it's um, that ability to be flexible about questions you're asking or how you're exploring different avenues that as people trust you to work with you more and more, they start telling you things that, you know, then that sort of changes your perspective. And, you know, anthropology is very much a qualitative social science. So we are interested in gathering um, the way we understand you know, the people that we're working with or, you know, the culture, cultural practices and so on is by, you know, what we classically call living with the folks, right? And sort of participating in the life and under trying to understand what's going on from their perspective. And so for that, you, they, you know, you do need them to trust you. Um, to build those relationships. But that qualitative approach, um, what now some people are calling a story-based approach, understanding the story, the narrative, the value of that approach is that it allows you to understand why people do what they do. It's not just about what are they doing, which you can get quantitatively. And we do also want to include quantitative data or information in what we're trying to understand, but qualitative data becomes very important when you want to really understand why people do what they do, how are they thinking about things, and what's the relationship between the different aspects of social organization. So participatory research really benefits that approach. Let me put it that way. Do you find, sort of coming into these situations, I imagine you have ways of sort of collecting data that you, you I guess, coming from a, a science background of scientific training, think that that's how data should be collected. And do you find that sort of sometimes clashes, you know, as a way of, of generating knowledge that they can then be used? But do you find that sometimes clashes with almost sort of people, local people's perceptions of ways of gathering knowledge? I mean, I think you know, people often might just feel they they know based from experience and the way that, that certain things work. And then you might be but no, but we have to actually collect data to demonstrate this. And that whole process of collecting data might seem to people to be quite pointless because it, it's obvious, if you like. And do you, I mean, mm-hmm. you find it difficult to sort of convince people that it's actually worth <laughs> going through this process of asking these questions, visiting these sites? And I think the hardest people to convince are sometimes the ecologists in the <laughs> Because they might think that they know exactly, you know, what the right answers are for any particular habitat. And then they're like skeptical that local people could actually tell them something that they don't know. There's that kind of skepticism to be overcome. But talking to local people themselves, at least our experience has been when we've been doing our work in the Amazon and in Chicago you know, when we explain what the purpose of our rapid inventory program, for example, is, um, 
And then the work I've been doing with more intensive work in communities on the quality of life planning processes, as we call it, when they understand what the purpose of that is in the in the sense of making a case for their inclusion in the management of these areas, which is what we're trying to do, right? I mean, we do have, it's not just research for research sake. It is for the benefit of the conservation program and for the benefit of the local people. Then they they don't question that the methodology is necessary. I I don't think. I think they accept that there's a pleasure in um, people like to tell their stories. They like to share their stories. And if somebody from the outside is coming in and saying, well, tell me, where do you go to hunt and fish? You know, and where do you not go to hunt and fish? Because it's a sacred site. They want to tell those stories because they're proud. They don't get asked that very often. They don't get asked, what do you know about where you live? People assume they don't know. And they just assume that they have to tell folks how to protect this landscape. So when you go in there with the opposite perspective and say, well, you all know you've lived here for so many millennia, tell us how you, what you do. Then they're very glad to share that information if they trust you and if they see that it's going towards their own benefit. Right. So it's always, so to, to advance just, well, I'm sure that multiple advantages of this approach, but one, one is a way of just generating information very easily based on the experience of the people who actually live in these places and, mm-hmm. and experience this stuff every day. And then there's the benefit of involving people in that process so that they actually have a stake and a trust exactly. and a, in the information that's generated from that. And then the decisions that are based on that are going to be more trusted if you like or people are going to be right. feel, feel engaged with it that's been our experience in the places we've worked you know when we've used our participatory methodologies what we found is folks who previously maybe they didn't know about the protected area you know that was being created in their vicinity maybe they were afraid that that would mean they couldn't use the, you know, where they always go to hunt and fish, they depend on those forests in the Amazon I'm talking about for their livelihood. When they start understanding that, no, this is, you know, this is a way for you to continue to have a way of life that you want, then they start not just providing information, but actively participating in the work of conservation. They start for example, you know, stopping illegal logging going on in those areas. So we have evidence of that, um, of the effectiveness of this methodology in actually getting communities. They become voluntary park guards or they become part of the park guard system, getting paid, etc. So, you know, there's a lot of um, benefits to the, the conservation organizations when we can use these participatory methods. And do you find, so coming in from, from outside as well, I mean, do, you, do you find you often have to overcome levels of suspicion? And I mean, there's a lot of sort of trust building to be done. I mean, maybe because of, of how people have approached things in the past as well, it's maybe mm-hmm. undermined. Right. Trust. I imagine in certain situations, particularly if you're discussing illegal activities and things like that, then, then people might be very wary of mm-hmm. 
sharing that information, discussing it until there's a certain amount of of trust has been built. People understand you know, more deeply what the what the aims of the research and and the, the bigger picture of what that research is informing. Right. I mean, that's that's definitely the case, and you know, that's like a very critical first step is to take the time to build that trust. And often, our approach um, has been: we, the field museum, we don't go in just cold. Show up and say, "Hey, we're here." <laughs> Take our word for it. We go in, and that's kind of been a hallmark of our approach at the Field Museum. We work with local partners. The first step we do is we discuss with our local non-governmental or NGO partners, you know, both the conservation organizations and local in some instances, you know, the indigenous federations or the organizations that are uh, working with the communities. We talk with them about what we think could be useful in the process of doing a rapid inventory or working with the communities, et cetera. And so once that relationship is established and there's a, both a formal accord and then there's, you know, sort of the relationship building that has to happen, then we can go to the communities with folks that they already trust. You know, that saves us some time too, um, because we're going in as part of a group that's already trusted and, you know, and we can work together collaboratively. Presumably everyone's fully aware of what the aims are and, and right. where things are headed right from the outset. Right. And, you know, sometimes communities say, no, we don't want to work with you. Right. You know, we are, we don't, we got interests that are not compatible with what you <laughs> want to do. And then, okay, then we have to respect that and, you know, back off until they decide to change their mind. So, and have you experienced that situation often? I mean, is that? Yeah, not often, but it happens. I mean, you know, there, there was uh, when we first started doing our quality of life methodologies, we were working in um, around the buffer zone of uh, Cordillera Azul National Park in Peru. And, um, you know, there are communities on the eastern side of the park uh, were largely all indigenous communities, Shipibo and uh, Kakataibo. And um, some of these communities, one in particular, had been very involved with illegal loggers. There was a faction in that community that was very much gaining revenue and so on from working with these loggers. And so that faction dominated the political life of that community. So they were like, no, we don't want to work with the park. We don't want to work with you all. And so we had to respect that and we didn't work with that community. Then in the meantime, the other communities were willing to collaborate. And part of what we do in our process of what we call quality of life planning is, so this is the museum-based part of it. I forgot to answer that part earlier. You know, as a museum, we're uh, we have a lot of experience in how you use multi-layered communication strategies, right? When you think about exhibitions at a museum, they're a combination of the artifact, obviously, but also text and video and other multimedia ways in which you contextualize 
what the message that you're trying to convey to your public. So we take that multi-layered approach to communication into the work we do with communities. And we came up with ways in which we created materials that and when we do our um, community reflection, if you want, we call it asset mapping because we're talking to the communities about what do you value, you know, what are the strengths of your community, et cetera. We have lots of materials that are visual and so on. So when we do that, we also help the community as the goal of that process is to help them set priorities or how they want to improve their quality of life. And oftentimes, because there's this process of reflection, they themselves come to the determination that protecting their forest is a priority. But they also need to generate income. Although a lot of these communities, if their forests are healthy, they don't need a lot of income because they're hunting, they're fishing, they have their little um, horticulture plots, you know, 90% of their livelihood, they're self-sufficient, so to speak. We get them to start thinking, how much income do we really need? And how can we do that without cutting down our main source of livelihood, the forest? And so then things emerge like handcraft projects as a way of generating income, which are small scale. You know, you don't have to do a lot of major production of handcrafts to get the income that you might want for your school fees or, you know, that the women want. And it's women-centered, largely. And so we started doing that in this region with the other communities, and the women really were enthusiastic about the handcraft project in their community. And we helped, we brought in experts who gave them technical advice on how to make things for a market, et cetera and financial planning help. So the women in this other community that was rejecting us started to hear about what we were doing in these other communities. And they were like, can't we participate in this? And we said, well, your leaders are saying they don't want to work with us. So talk to your leaders. I don't know where that's at now, but um, I think over time, they probably also would agree to work with the park. Of their own volition, if you like. And well, could, they see the benefit. I, can you tell us a bit more about the, the sort of the quality of life plans and that that process? That sounds to me like something that that we should probably all go through wherever we live and, and think about. Yeah, what In we fact, need for uh, quality of life and what we don't actually need for, for what exactly. kind of life we aspire to. Yeah, I agree, and we've been using it in Chicago as well, or in the Chicago region um, as well, with our uh, neighborhood organizations and then communities we've been working with in our Chicago region work as well. And it is, it's based, the methodology is based in anthropological theory and uh, method that basically, you know, as anthropologists from the earliest days, I would say, what were we trying to understand? We were trying to understand the forms of social organization that communities or societies have, right? The classic British anthropologists, you know, would go out to um, what they were calling so-called primitive communities at that time that we know, no, they were not. They were very sophisticated peoples, uh, societies, and try to understand, well, what's the way that they organize themselves? 
their political system. It looked very different from the Western system, but what we find always is that people always have a way of organizing themselves. You know, a lot of times it's through some sort of kinship system, but sometimes it's a mix of kinship and other forms of social voluntary associations, we call them, right? Like your church or your handicraft club or whatever, what have you. So our premise in our methodology is these are what we call the social assets of a community or the social strengths of a community. They have ways of solving problems. They're not sitting there despite difficult circumstances, which a lot of places we work, the people, you know, indigenous people have faced a lot of difficult circumstances historically, right? Their lands were taken. They don't have security to their lands and so on. But they have found ways to maintain cultural identity, to maintain their knowledge of their ecosystem and so on. So that's what we want to surface. And what we do is in this process is we create these spaces of reflection, we call it. We bring community together. We're the outsider and we can, you know, we play that role of saying, hey, let's reflect together on you know, what do you value? What do you do to make your livelihood? And using these kind of visual and uh, storytelling methods, the communities start to, when they have that moment to reflect on that, it helps them see themselves in a different way, if you will. Let's say the outcomes of that process ever surprised you, because I think we all, we all go in with a lot of of baggage and preconceptions based on our lives as to what yeah. we, we think that quality of life might look like and include yeah. both from ourselves and what we perceive other people might we might think that they might perceive are you often surprised in in sort of that what the outcome of that process is and I mean how yeah. can we also avoid I guess the temptation to maybe lead conversations in a direction that you think <laughs> you know, based on your sort of preconceptions or you know to, to get to point b that you want to get to yeah i'm often asked that question aren't i aren't we coming in with an agenda i mean to a certain extent yes we are i'm not going to say we're not because we're interested in making allies for conservation in our work but the thing is that as i said this methodology is based in an anthropological understanding. And so we have a lot of literature about the people of the Amazon. Anthropologists have been working in the Amazonian region since the early, late 19th century, whatever. So all of that accumulated ethnographic description of these people tells us something about, you know, so we come in with a pre-existing knowledge base, you know, that the people who live in these regions, you know, have certain belief systems that some, you know, there's distinctions, of course, among all these communities, but there's also some patterns that we know from all of this ethnographic literature, um, that kinship is still very important, for example, as a way of organizing folks, that the cosmological belief, the beliefs around the relationship between humans and non-humans is very strong. You know, the, the way that people think about the relationships between humans and non-humans governs a lot of how they regulate their use of the natural resources. 
That we know from the anthropological literature. So when we come in and we ask questions about that, it's not because we think that's the way it should be. It's because ethnographic evidence has told us that's generally the pattern of the Amazon. So sometimes that community may not have those values anymore. Okay, then we know that. But most of the time, and this is what has been surprising to me is that despite so many um, centuries, and especially these past few decades when the uh, extraction industries have really intensified, you know, their invasion into the Amazonian, these remote regions that, you know, we work in areas where our eco ecological scientists, ecologists have identified as probably some of the most biologically diverse forests and healthy intact forests in the region. I mean, the Amazon is vast. We work largely in the Western Amazon. Knowing that this pattern is there, what has surprised me is the strength of that pattern still, even after decades of where these people have been sometimes cut off when they have land insecurity, when they have, you know, had to forcibly move because of the boom of like, say, rubber or gold mining. And yet somehow, you know, they've managed to transmit and retain ecological knowledge that goes back generations. And the young people, I go into the community and I take a walk with a six-year-old, you know, into the forest. And the six-year-old is telling me, oh, this is this is this plant and this is that plant. And over here, that plot belongs to my relatives. And oh, look, these are the tracks of such and such, you know, animal. A six-year-old is telling me what the PhD ecologist will tell me. What do we make of that? We make of that that folks have a deep knowledge and they're passing it on to their children and grandchildren and grandchildren's children. And that, that is remarkable to me. I never cease to be amazed at how strong the knowledge base is of people who live and manage to have held on to a way of life in these forests, in these that, territories. I mean, that, that ecological knowledge is a, presumably, you know, is, is one of the assets that you, and it's an enormous asset and a very fragile one, could so easily be lost. Um, yeah, and I think the thing I, I recently was, um, you know, at an anthropology conference and as one of um, the anthropologists who works also in these kinds of areas was saying, sometimes conservation organizations want to just extract the ecological knowledge of, they're coming to realize and value indigenous ecological knowledge now. This is now the thing, right? In conservation, people have a growing awareness of that, that yeah, in fact, indigenous people have a depth of knowledge about the local environment and that's useful to conservation. But they want to just take this ecological knowledge, compartmentalize it in a way, and use that. But what we want to stress as social scientists is that the ecological knowledge wouldn't be there if all these other cultural systems that people have held on to weren't also there. The kinship systems, the reciprocity 
the resource sharing systems, you know, social relationships that people, the whole culture, if you will, you know, which is what we try to understand. And so it's not enough just to value the ecological knowledge. You have to uh, respect and strengthen the way that communities can hold on to their own set of values and ways of being. And if that means helping secure title to their lands so that they can be autonomous in their um, way they govern their lands, all of that is important. It's not important. It's not enough just to value the ecological knowledge, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's a really interesting point there. Something that I haven't really thought of before. Um, you know, in our work, we we do very much value local ecological knowledge mm-hmm. as, as a way of, of sort of rapidly getting information about you know, threatened mm-hmm. species and, and where they are, right. and, you know, their behavior and all sorts of important aspects. But I hadn't really made the leap to the, the, the structures that exist that sort of created that knowledge and, and sort of support. Exactly. So when, when yeah. you're talking about assets, are you thinking about physical things as well, like the presence of certain forest product, as well as those yeah. sort of uh, intangible things like the, the social structures and, and things? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's a great point. And you're absolutely right. There are physical assets, if you will, in our in our rapid inventory methodology overall, which the Field Museum, you know, has been using since 1999, I think. I could be maybe earlier. You know, at first, the ecologists and biologists in the were identifying physical assets, right? Like the variety of plants, et cetera. You know, the standard way of understanding what the value of the bio, the level of biodiversity would be in a particular area. And then I was like thinking, well, we can do the same for the social assets if we show their visible markers on the landscape, then that becomes a convincing argument for why folks need to be included in the protection of this area. So what we were doing, for example, were identifying the ways in which communities created trails into the forest for for use of natural resources, but these trails are not destructive of the forest, there are visible signs that people know how to navigate within a forest ecosystem in a way that's not destructive. So, or for example, the methods of um, what we call horticultural gardening, or um, typically in the Amazon, people don't use monocultivation. So their garden plots or their field, their plots for growing their staple crops like plantain or yucca. Their, their plots are very diversified. Um, so there's like a plantain next to a yucca, next to a corn, you know, and then fruit trees. And it's agroforestry, I guess, is what it's called. And that system of cultivation is compatible, again, with the maintenance of a healthy forest. And the other thing that's healthy about their system is they rotate. They let land lie fallow for, you know, it used to be 10 years. Now, sometimes it's down to five years. So, you know, things are changing too, not trying to romanticize everything here. So when we have these physical markers of cultural practices is what it is, right? They're cultural practices of caring for the land. We can point to those as evidence that people 
you know, have a way of uh, managing their natural resources that are compatible with conservation or fishing practices or leaving certain areas alone because they're taboo. They create a religious belief this area is protected by the anaconda. We're not going to fish there. Those are visible, tangible assets. So I'm going to ask you a really mean question now. Go for it. Now that um, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, fortress conservation, I mean, obviously the, sort of the conservation movement has moved a long way since sort of the early colonial ideas of like, this is important for conservation and, and people need to be excluded from this. And that sort of conservation, creating these protected areas that are essentially wilderness, as we might have thought. Do you think there's, there's still a role for fortress conservation even now? I mean, obviously we've moved a long way as a community as a conservation community, and I say that in the, the, the biggest sense, really, towards recognising how critical it is for you know, participatory management of national parks on protected areas and things like that. Is there space for that kind of fortress approach now? Well, I mean, to a large extent, I think there's still a role for the IUCN categories, if that's what you're talking about. So if there's a national park, for example, I guess I know best the Amazon context and it's different across different, you know, like in Africa and Asia, it's a very different sort of uh, scenario, right? In, in Latin America, the national parks have been created. They didn't have to exclude communities. They didn't have to forcibly, for the most part, remove people from areas that were designated as national parks. In my experience, like the Cordillera Azul National Park, the bulk of it is still, nobody lives in, in the park. Nobody, I mean, people might traverse through it, but most of the natural resource use activity is on the edges of the bound, in, and it was created deliberately in a way that allowed those edges to be a little blurry so that people had use rights inside you know, the boundaries of the park for traditional hunting, fishing, etc. But things like cattle ranching were excluded because they are destructive of the forest or logging, you know, were excluded. So if by fortress we mean making restrictions on certain types of activities within areas that we value for their biological diversity for their intact, healthy forests, I think that there's still a place for that. Yeah, I think that does benefit everybody. I mean, you know, we don't want to not have areas that are have different kinds of usage, if you will, you know, areas designated for agriculture or what have you, or manage forestry for that matter. Right. So, yeah, there is a place for those kinds of categories or distinctions, I think. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. It's such a knotty problem sometimes. If um... <laughs> But you're more likely to get that kind of restricted use in these areas and people willing to help you maintain non-human I mean, respecting the, the, the place of non-humans in that, which is what this is, right? Saying, let the other species have some space, for goodness sake. You're more likely to get that if you work with the local communities, you know, than if you just try to put a fence around it and be mean to people. 
look at what happens like in India is the case I know because, you know, looked at parks there where they've tried to do very strict boundaries and not wanting people to go in and you getting huge amounts of poaching anyway. That's a bit interesting in the UK context as well. I mean, we have national parks, which are mm-hmm. many of our national parks are very nature impoverished. And some of the most nature rich areas in the UK are actually on private areas that are fenced off and people are not allowed in. And it's, I mean, it's a very interesting and, and very topical yeah. debate at the moment. Our national well, that... parks are not really where the conservation is actually going on. It's going mm-hmm. on elsewhere. That's interesting. Well, in the United States, the national parks, as you know, I mean, they develop both a recreational profile, right? So like Yellowstone National Park, you can go, you can camp, you can use large portions of it are recreational for people. And then there are parts of it that are set aside, etc. Now, Native Americans are making the argument that they should be allowed to co-manage some of these parks that were their ancestral lands. So that's becoming an interesting conversation as well here in the U.S. with Native communities in the U.S. making the case that they should be co-managing these areas, that they have the wherewithal and the knowledge and expertise to manage them for biological health. I don't know where it's going to go, but no, that's a good a good segue into so where I wanted to go next and with a bit of time that we have left is to, to talk a bit more about the work that the Keller Science Action Center does does in the US. The center plays an active role simultaneously in the Amazon, but also in Chicago is the other big area mm-hmm. of their focus. Um, like how do those sort of two priorities sort of work together, complement one another and in terms of knowledge generated in one region, one set of problems mm-hmm. informing work elsewhere. Yeah. yeah, that's been a really fun. I've been so privileged to be able to work in both these landscapes, very different. Um, I did come to the Field Museum with a background in urban anthropology as well as the work I had done in the neotropics. So working in Chicago and what's unique in some ways, I think it's unique about Chicago, or at least it's exceptional, is that we have these, um, we call it the green collar around the city of these forest preserves. And what um, early on the Field Museum was part of a effort to understand the biological diversity of the Chicago region. And this group of including the local zoological organizations and the conservation, they came together and they formed this organization called Chicago Wilderness. And Field Museum was one of the founding members of that group, the Chicago Wilderness. And that group dedicated itself to publicizing and making awareness of the value of biodiversity in this urban region. And it's globally significant remnants of prairie and wetland habitats and important bird species come through. Um, There's a value to protecting nature in an urban environment. Um, And I think that's true for we're now, we know that's true for all different urban environments, um, that the role that natural areas play in urban environments is critical to both the public health of people, but also to nature itself, et cetera. So 
we've been working on both documenting the extent of biological diversity in this urban region, but also then working with communities again. And so that whole asset mapping methodology, actually, we started doing that first in the Chicago region and then modified it to work in the Amazon. We work in a region called the Calumet region, which is the southeast side of Chicago and extends into Indiana um, along the lakeshore. And it's a region of globally significant biodiversity. There are these in the midst of a very industrial, you know, now decline because a lot of the steel mills have closed. There are these pockets of wetland, of oak savanna, very precious habitats. And so, again, the communities that live there, in this case, of course, you're not talking about an area here and a community there. You're talking about this mosaic. Have themselves in the Calumet, they started their own environmental organizations. They fought against the sighting of an airport. You know, the mayor, uh, Mayor Richard J. Daly, the first Daly mayor, he wanted to build an airport in this region. And they got him to stop by organizing themselves and said, we don't want an airport. You're destroying our communities. And so there's a history of environmental activism in that communities. It's also where in this public housing project, uh, Alk Elk Gardens, uh, Hazel Johnson, African-American woman, started an environmental justice organization among the first in the nation and fought against polluting industries and noticing high rates of cancer deaths in her community. Again, same as with the indigenous peoples of the Amazon, folks who are trying to find an alternative way of life that isn't dependent on heavy extraction in this case. So how do we help them? How can we be allies to this kind of activism that is about protecting this landscape that's so fragile, you know, in some cases much more fragile than the Amazon, which is big and vast. Here we just have these little pockets that we have to work on. So fascinating. It's been fascinating that the same approaches can work in seemingly, you know, from mm-hmm. the outside, quite different mm-hmm. situations and sets of challenges. Mm-hmm. I guess that sort of speaks to the commonalities of the human condition, wherever you are. Um, exactly. And I think the assumption conservation organizations had made, which there I think is changing the better is that only certain people care about the environment. We the privileged, to put it starkly, we the privileged, you know, nature lovers are the ones who care and we have to be the ones who advocate. That's not the case. You know, there's a deep love of nature among people everywhere. You know, obviously there are some people who couldn't care less. I'm not trying to generalize, but ordinary working class folks also have an appreciation for and desire to be in nature, to commune with non-human species and so on. So we should work with them. We shouldn't exclude them from our efforts. I think that's a really good place to finish. (laughs) Um, yeah, thank you so much, Alaka, for thank uh, you. Today. It's fascinating. I could carry on speaking to you for many hours more. Thank you, and and thank you for the work you're doing, Rowan, as well. 
I think all of us are in the same fight here to help nature, to understand what we can do. I mean, it's got to be essential to everything we do now, protecting. Thank you for listening to Connecting the Dots, an Azimuth World Foundation podcast. Join the conversation on our website, azimuthworldfoundation.org, or by following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn.